May your grace continually go before us and follow behind us that we may continually grow in your good works. So now let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, good evening, brothers and sisters. We are in 1 Corinthians. Uh, nope, Chronicles. I said Corinthians when I should have said Timothy. And anyone notice that? 1 Timothy. And I just said Corinthians. We're in Chronicles. We will be in Corinthians not too far from now. Well, I don't know. I got the Gospels. And, but yeah, you know, a couple of years maybe. Um, actually... It, it, we probably will split, um, we'll do like Matthew, then we'll do a couple epistles, then Mark. That way we can kind of diversify the genre. So we probably won't go through the New Testament in its order. We'll go through all of it, but we'll stagger the order a little bit for sake of variety in genre. So we can bounce between gospels and epistles. That would be, I think, best. Anyways, so Corinthians, you know, somewhere down the road. But Chronicles tonight, First Chronicles 17. I heard a rumor that a, a Someone did a fantastic job handling the passage from chapter 13 through 17 last week. Heard a rumor. Squandered. Um, we're going to pick up in 17. I wanted to recap um, what happens there because it affects the rest of the book. Yes, you heard that. I'm going to cover the rest of the book, First Corinthians. Uh, Chronicles. Just from now on, assume Corinthians is Chronicles. Um, but do not be alarmed. Um, a lot of this, uh, about seven or eight chapters are just a list of names, and we are going to be able to pass through those fairly quickly. All right. So Chronicles, if you remember, we're looking at a chain, a golden chain, because Chronicles is connecting for the people of God, the people of the past with the people of the future. Chains make us stronger, but we're only as strong as the weakest link. So Chronicles is trying to teach us to be a stronger link. And you might remember what St. Jerome called Chronicles in his title of his Latin translation of the book. He called it a chronicle of the whole divine history. And it is, uh, it seems to me that Chronicles is not just the whole divine history back there, but history to come. That Chronicles is to the Old Testament what Revelation is to the New Testament. That Chronicles being at the end of the Hebrew order of the Bible is put there intentionally because Chronicles wants to say to those who are in this place, in, in this time, coming back from Babylon to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the people of God, uh, the Chronicler wants to say, look, our past this is what our past looked like, and God wants to do this again in us. So he's using the history to encourage them into a new future. Theologically, you call that an eschatology, and it's nice because it rhymes well with history. Um, that's what they're trying to do. And so Chronicles is for us a link as well. As the people of God, different nationalities now, but as the people of God, we are part of this golden chain that St. Simeon, the new theologian, referred to. Let me read it, that quote for you again, if you forgot from two weeks ago. He said that the believers become linked with their predecessors through obedience to the divine commandments and endowed with divine grace become filled with the same light. So as we obey Christ's teachings, then he gives us grace 
And um, he gives us grace to obey his teachings. And then through that grace, we are also given the same light that they had. In other words, we aren't getting less of Christ because we're further down the generations. We're further down the genealogies. If we connect ourselves to the family tree of God, we are connected to the same root. And Chronicles begins with the genealogies to let us know that this story Even though this is the aftermath of the exile, the chronicler is writing to the remnant that's returned. He wants them to know that the exile didn't change things. God has not looked at his people differently. They're still connected to Adam, to Abraham, and all the great story of salvation. And if they want to keep growing in this family tree, they must obey God. And that's part of what Chronicles is showing us. Because do you remember how Nehemiah ended? Nehemiah is, uh, Chronicles comes after Nehemiah in the Hebrew order of the Old Testament. Nehemiah ended chapter 13 with the Jews completely messing up. Even after they renewed their covenant before God, they were marrying uh, uh, pagan people. So they're, they're merging pagan families with, 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 uh, with monotheistic Yahweh uh, the one God families, Israel families, and um, that wasn't good because it was tainting the worship and, and the purity of the covenant. They were neglecting the temple. The priests were no longer supported, so it was empty. And instead, Sambalot and Tobiah had places in the temple and had parts to play in there, and they rejected the Sabbath. So then the day of worship, the temples avoided so that the marketplace could be crowded and business could be exchanged. Uh, this is what had happened at the end of Nehemiah. Nehemiah shows up and starts ripping out beards and saying, get your act together. And then Chronicle steps in and says, okay, I understand it's hard. We don't know if we can make it. But the job of this book is to tell God's people, even in hard times, we can make it. Remember our glorious past so that we can see where we're headed. Because the path is but a seed of the fruit to come if we remain faithful and allow God to water it. So, the remnant has come back from Babylon. You know it took them a long time to rebuild the temple. They return in 539, and they don't get it done till 516. So what is that, 23-ish years? Am I doing that right on the top of my head? Okay, yeah, some decades they were slow. So the writer Chronicles, probably Ezra, is showing them the glorious heritage they have. So get on it. What are you guys doing? So we're going to read a lot about the temple. Last week, Tyler showed us the coming of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It's there now. And so now David wants to get going on the temple. But okay, so I want you guys to consider the remnant has left the magnificent Babylonian Empire. I mean, even today you go to museums and we're impressed with what Babylon produced. High culture. Then they come back to the small podunk hillbilly hills of, um, of Judea. And there they find that, well, Nebuchadnezzar had left the poor there to basically farm the land so that Babylon can reap the profits. There's no culture happening. It is small town, disappointing town. It is not the Jerusalem they left. And it's a disappointment. Man, we left this for this? And the chronicler wants to say, um, yeah, it can be disappointing. But guess what? David was disappointed as well. And he responded to this disappointment in a way that invited him deeper 
into God's desires. Now, you and I know what disappointment feels like. Maybe we desire to go to a certain job or live in a certain place or marry a certain person or have a certain number of kids or have a certain house up here or be in a different conflict. Whatever it is, we got an idea of what we want to do. It doesn't happen. And we get disappointed and we get let down. And we have different ways of reacting to that. We're going to see what David does is he doesn't, he doesn't, David says, Lord, I want to build you a temple. God says, no, David, you're not going to build me a temple. What? I want to build a temple. Now I'm speaking culturally here, what America's culture would be like. No, this is what I want to do. My heart, Disney has told me to follow my heart. My heart tells me to do this. So I'm going to do it. So what we would do is instead we would seek a new kingdom, this kingdom or company or place or church. This one will let me do what I want to do. Or we seek a new prophet. I don't like what he was saying to me. He said, God told me, no, I'll get a new prophet. You're fired, Gad. You over here. You're my prophet now. Or we seek a new calling. King of Israel can't even do what he wants. I'm not the king of Israel anymore. I'm going to be the king of the Assyrians or something. Um, This is the way, typically, the human nature wants to handle disappointment. Oh, you tell me no? Fine. I'm going to find a way to do it. This is not what David does. David, instead, in the face of disappointment, he dives deeper. He dives deeper into the kingdom, into the prophet, and into the calling before him. So he listens well. And this is what we want to do. When we face disappointment, we need to see disappointment as inviting us to dig deeper into the desires of God. Not dig deeper into my desires, but to recognize maybe my desires aren't always in alignment with what's good for me. And that disappointment's a way to let me dive deeper into what God has put before me. So let's look at it. First Chronicles. Got it right. Chapter 17. So the ark has been brought back to Jerusalem, and now the next logical step is, let's build the temple. It's here. This is permanent. Let's do this. So now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, oh, I said Gad. Gad is also in the story, but Nathan is the prophet this time. Uh, Nathan the prophet said, behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you hard to believe a prophet said that because that's basically the the disney corporation and everything else in our society telling you yeah it sounds good it's in your heart go do it the universe is behind you <laughs> <laughs> do all that's in your heart for god is with you now nathan it's important to see he does not say thus says the lord nathan just says sounds good to me when god shows up and says nathan that wasn't my word so verse three that same night the word of the lord came to nathan Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in, for I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling, and in all places where I have moved with all Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, someone cracked a really good joke earlier this day and said, because we know we're doing a temple dedication, a church sanctuary dedication in two weeks. Um, 
they joked saying, David wanted to build God a house of cedar, and here we meet in what's called the cedar building. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> it's, it's here, Lord. We built you a house of cedar. He allowed it to happen because he, he led us here. <laughs> um, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Verse 7. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people, and I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Whoa. David wanted to just glorify God. God's like, mm, no, nope, I'm going to glorify you. That's, that's shocking. But that's actually what the New Testament says that God wants to do with his church. He wants to give us his glory. We just need to be at a place to follow his ways. Um, this is what he's promising to David. And I will, verse 9, appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. That's a really cool turn of words. David wants to build God a house. Example, temple. Then God's like, David, you can't do it. I have something else in mind for you, though. I'm going to build you a house, not a temple. He's going to build David a lineage, a genealogy. He's going to give him descendants. He's going to make David a legacy. Verse 11, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your seed, offspring, seed, after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, it's super vague on the son, right? And it's meant to be. We're not meant to necessarily think of Solomon right now. We're meant to think that David will have a lineage of important people, one of whom will be Christ. He, verse 12, he shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, Saul. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all his vision, Nathan spoke to David. David is disappointed. What do you mean I can't build you a temple? This is all I want to do. This is my deep desire is to give to you honor and glory, Lord. And then God just says, no, David, I have a better plan. And I'm inviting you to give yourself fully to my desire. And it's beyond what David could have asked for. David had a meager dream compared to what God is now offering. Your son will build me a temple. And he's going to sit on the throne forever. Okay, so his son Solomon does build him a temple. We'll see this next week. Um, and Solomon's, Solomon's son sits on the throne, his sons and his sons and his sons, until the exile. 
The lineage still keeps going. They're not on the throne. But then Jesus comes. And Jesus is called the son of David. He ascends to the throne of God, not just the throne of Jerusalem. And he's there forever, ruling and reigning over his people. And what Christ does is he, it said, your son will build for me a house. Christ is building for us the house. His people, the church, the New Testament says, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is building the house. And we are not just links in the chain. We're stones in the temple. This is what he's promising to David. And it is far more than David could ask. When we face disappointment in our desires, we're invited to dig deeper into God's desires. And David responds in verse 16 with a prayer of gratitude. He does not pray, Lord, ah, I really wanted to. I had this vision and this idea, but whatever. Fine. Okay. Do, do that if you want to. I'll just sit here and retire and play golf until my son's born. He doesn't do that. He is awed by what God says. He gives himself totally over to God's plan and he praises God and says, I can't believe this. I don't deserve this. I was a shepherd and now you've, you've not only made me king, but you're going to make my kingdom eternal. He's blown away. And so what we're going to see in the remainder of 1 Chronicles, because 2 Chronicles, Solomon begins to reign. So through the, through the rest of 1 Chronicles, we're going to see David dive deeper into God's desires. And he is going to do it fantastically. So um, David advances the golden chain by completing his work so that Solomon can start his. David is actually building the temple. He just doesn't get to do the architecture. That's Solomon's job. But David has a lot of work to do to get Solomon to start his job. David could decide, I'm in the later stage of my life. I've been denied. I'm just going to kind of kick it, get fat, and let everyone feed me while I let all the young men do the wars and stuff. That's not what David does. David is active. He's engaged. And he seeks to finish what God put him on earth to do. And that's how he passes successfully to Solomon the kingdom. The golden chain is made strong because David was willing to dive deeper in the midst of his disappointment. So here's how he does this. He's going to do this in four ways. And this is, this is going to take us to the end of first Chronicles. So in chapters 18 to 20, David subdues the land for worship. He subdues the land for worship. One of the things God said that needed to happen in verse nine This is 17 verse 9. He said, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed anymore. And violent men shall not waste them anymore. And then um, in in verse 10, in the middle, it said, I will subdue all your enemies. One of the important tasks to building the temple was the land had to, excuse me, before the temple can be grown, the wicked had to be uprooted. God said, I will plant them in their own land. But the wicked, the weeds are there and they have to be uprooted. David's task is to continue and to do even better than he had done what he's always been, a warrior. David is to now go and make sure the boundaries of Israel are secure. So chapter 18, this is 18, 19, and 20. David subdues the land for worship. Chapter 18, we have an overview of David's victories. It kind of just goes over some of the, uh, the his final wars. What he does to get the land stabilized. Chapter nine, uh, yeah, chapter 19, 
Uh, it zeroes in on one of these battles, which is apparently the epic battle, the battle against the Ammonites. And if you know your Bible, the Ammonites are not good news for Israel. Cover that in a second. And then in chapter 20, it ends with um, David's, um, some of his mighty warriors killing off the rest of the giants in the land, which is really important. Uh, not to go into it too deeply right now, but giants were considered um, basically demonic-possessed warriors. It was the idea. They weren't just large humans. They were um, they were wicked, which is why God had this thing against giants. And so um, he finishes them off. The land is purged. The temple now has a place. Okay, so let's look at it. Chapter 18, verse 1. Just real quick, we'll look at some of the highlights. 18 verse 1, after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. The Philistines were a problem forever. <laughs> now David is finally like, all right, you know what? I can't build the temple, so fine. I will make sure Solomon doesn't have to deal with these guys. So he takes them out. And then in verse 2, uh, he, and, and he took Gath and its villages out of the hand of the Philistines. Yep, you guys, no more power. Verse 2, and he defeated Moab. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Moab was a pain in the butt in the wilderness because it was, uh, what was the, Balaam, Balak, hires Balaam to go curse them, the Moabites. And now he's like, you guys are done. So he wipes them out. Um, part of the reason he's doing this too is if you look at verse 9, he's collecting tribute for the temple. How do you fund the temple? Oh, God, God plunders his enemies. That's how he funds his temple. So in verse 9, when two king of Hamath heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadazizer, king of Zobah, this, by the way, that story is in chapter 19, he sent his son Hadram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. And Hadadezer had often been at war with two. And he sent all sorts of articles of gold and silver and bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord together with all the silver and gold that he had carried off from all the nations, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, and Amalek. So he dedicates all of the plunder he's getting from his wars to the temple. Um, then we see in chapter 19, it's a detailed story about the battle against the Ammonites. Now, the reason this is important, you saw in verse two, 18 verse 2 that he defeated Moab. And now 19, chapter 19, he defeats the Ammonites. In Nehemiah 13, at the end of our last book, um, it said that they found written in the law, and the place they found it was from Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 and 5, that no Edomite, I'm sorry, uh, no Moabite or Ammonite shall ever enter the house of God. Okay, so you can't build the house of God if Ammonites and Moabites are going around the land. They must be subdued. David is preparing for the temple. Um, Now, there are obviously exceptions here. Ruth was a Moabite. The difference is that she surrendered her life to Israel's God. And so there's always that exception. Moabites and Ammonites are not hated by God. Their ways are hated by God. They are welcome if they are willing to give themselves to Yahweh. Um, But those who refuse, David is subduing. Um, Okay. So chapter 19 is a detailed story. Basically, um, 
David's is being nice. He sends some guys over to ask about the health of a king, and then he humiliates them. He cuts off their robes at like the waist, so they're naked from the waist down, and he shaves their beards off. And in that time, like a beard was a man's glory. So they were humiliated, and it was a way of you treat an ambassador that way, you're treating the country that way. And so like, oh no, David hates us now. So they hire Syrians to come help them, and it's just this whole mess happens. And then David goes out and mildly battles them, and he conquers them. Chapter twenty, verse. One, um, you'll see that uh, they finally conquered the Ammonites, and is this chapter twenty, verse two? David took the crown of their king from his head, and he found that it weighed a talent of gold, and that it was uh, it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head, and he, he brought the spoil out of the city a very great amount, and then he put the people to forced labor. Basically, you guys are going to help us get the temple ready, so. Yeah, all working together. Now, what you'll notice in chapter 20, verse 1, is a very familiar phrase. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, Joab led the army and ravaged the country of the Ammonites and came and besieged Rabbah. And David remained at Jerusalem. Does this ring a bell from a story in Samuel? David, while the kings went out to war, he just laid around on his couch. He got up, looked out on the balcony, and saw Bathsheba bathing. You guys know how that story goes. That story's not here. Because remember, the chronicler is trying to tell Israel about the best of their history so that they're excited about what God will keep doing in their lives. Remember that David was a man after God's own heart, so let's mimic that. Let's not focus on our failures. We've already beat ourselves up over that. Remember, Chronicles is as if you're looking at Israel's history through the lens of justification. They are cleansed. Although while I say that, our next chapter introduces a sin. <laughs> um, but this is, you'll see why this sin is very important. It's also building hope. So the rest of 20, we see them battling the giants done. Chapter 21. So the second way that David um, dives deep into God's desire. We saw first, he subdues the land for worship, and now David lays a foundation for worship. He subdues the land, now he lays a foundation for worship. Chapter 21. This is worth just reading, and then we'll make some comments. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. That's a census. Why do you take a census? You take a census, like in Luke chapter 2, um, when everyone had to go to their hometown for the census, uh, usually to tax people, to know what kind of revenue you're supposed to be getting. So David may be taxing the people. Sometimes you take a census to enlist people in a draft for military service. Uh, sometimes you take a census to enlist people for forced labor. We don't know what he's doing. It's very vague on what happens. But he numbers the people. And apparently this is not good. Satan incited him to do it. <laughs> and Joab, we're going to see, does not want to do it. And God is very unhappy about this. So in verse 2, David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my lord, the king, all of them, my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. And Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1.1 million men who drew the sword. And in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. 
But he had his own little mini protest here. He did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. I love it. He fudges the numbers a little bit, excludes some to uh, just say, just to stick it to David a little bit. Uh, But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, the other prophet, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, and that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will. One, Either three years of famine, two, or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, basically undoing everything he did in chapters 18, 19, and 20. Mm -hmm. Or else, three, three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, mask wearing and fighting about COVID tests. (laughs) Sorry, I just, you know. With the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him, God, who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. This is pure confession. What he basically says is he does not choose one, two, or three. He just says, let the Lord choose. I am at his mercy because I have sinned against you and you alone. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Therefore, you're just in your sentence without reproach in your judgment. That's what he's saying. I will fall in the Lord's mercy. He does what I deserve. That's true repentance. Not when you say, oh, I'm sorry, please, though, like restore this or fix this or like get me out of trouble. Um, he's like full on sorry. and says, yeah, I deserve the worst. Do you do what you will. So. The Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, verse 14, and 70,000 men of Israel fell, and God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem, um, and he was going to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented. Now, what the Lord saw is probably what's going to happen in verse 18 and on. So I think the story is going to jump back and give us more detail. Uh, The Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough. Now stay your hand, and the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan. Um, some translations have it a slightly different name that starts with A, something like Orna, something like that. Um, same name. Threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth, and in his hand a drawn sword stretching out over Jerusalem. And David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces And David said to God, was it not I who gave the command to number the people? Is it, it is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people. Okay, so how did all this happen? How did all this turn? David builds an altar. And this is enormous to the story. Verse 18. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. 
So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. Yeah, a flaming sword in an angel's hand. You absolutely hide yourself. And David's came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it, and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood. And the wheat for a grain offering, I give it all. But the king, David, said to Ornan, No, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by the weight for the site. Um, And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. Hold your spot there. This is huge. So Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. David confesses, I'm the one who sinned. Punish me. God says, build me an altar. So he purchases this land um, We'll find out in a minute. This is at the top of Mount Moriah. This is the place where Abraham offered his son Isaac on an altar. And he buys this land from Ornan. And there he makes with the oxen and the wood sledges, the sledges of the threshing sledges. They're basically, they're sleds you put your kids on, you pull them. And there's little nails underneath so it threshes the wheat. Um, So he takes the wood from that and he, he makes this little altar. And what's really important is that David does not light the altar. He's not atoning for himself. God lights the altar from heaven. And this is super important because what David, in fact, I'm getting ahead of myself, but just keep that in your mind, okay? God lights it with lightning from heaven or fire from heaven. Now, verse 28. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God. And hear the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Whoa. Okay. The tabernacle's in Gibeah. It's over there somewhere. The ark is in Jerusalem with a tent covering it. So there's, right now the ark's here in Jerusalem. The rest of the tabernacle's over there in Gibeah. David can't get there. So God commands him to build an altar here. He builds an altar. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes it. The plague is stayed. And then he's told that this will be the site for the new temple. So two really important things. We see heaven's favor on this. As God, um, as, as Moses built the tabernacle and they dedicated it to God, fire fell from heaven. Moses did not light the altar. The, um, the priests did not light the altar. Heaven lighted the altar first. They maintained the flame. Here, the fire is lit from heaven. God has sanctioned this as his place. And now David, um, this is now where the temple is going to be built. The altar or the, the, the Ark of the Covenant will be brought up here. Temple, uh, the, Solomon will build the temple right here. 
So not only has God chosen it, but the foundation of the temple David lays, not literally with a slab of concrete or marble or stone, he lays the foundation with his repentance, his humble repentance and casting himself on the Lord's mercy and taking upon himself the blame for the, for the sin that's happening. This is the foundation of worship is that we come before God and say, we are at your mercy. That's where worship begins. It doesn't begin with high-handed, we're going to cause a ruckus that you will notice us, God, and you'll be pleased with us. It begins with us saying, we know that we haven't done exactly the work of bringing your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, and that we sometimes don't ask you for bread. We kind of do things our own way, or we steal it from someone else, or uh, we've got lots of trespasses, and we've definitely fallen into evil. Like, all these things happen, so we come before God, and we say, yes, we are at your mercy. And of course, he sends fire from heaven. He sends his Holy Spirit upon his church. It's the same picture. He sends his Holy Spirit upon his church, and he raises us up and says, all right, let's build this. Let's build this temple So David lays the foundation for worship through his confession and his repentance. But the last thing I want to point out about this is that Satan incites this whole thing in verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number the people. David does not say, God, the devil made me do it. He does not blame anything else. He takes full responsibility for listening to the devil over God. But what we also want to see here is that what What this gives us hope for in the future is that we do not have to be stuck in our past sins and say, oh, but I'm unworthy to be used by God because I did that. Satan incited me to do this one time and I wrecked people's lives and I hurt people and I am unqualified. We focus too much on the debts of our past when God says, wait a minute. I gave you an altar to fix that. Let's move on. And more than that, it's not that the Bible is telling us to just say, forget your past sins and move on. It's saying, actually, better, your past sins are the very stones I'm going to use to erect a temple. Because it's what David did that led to the altar, and the altar leads to the temple. So what Satan does to mess up our lives, when Satan wants us to focus on our disappointments, God's like, ah, he's going to wreak havoc. I know you're human, but I want you to see what he's done as an opportunity to allow me to advance my plan. Mm -hmm. And David does that. It works out for the best because David is willing to repent. Brothers and sisters, you will sin. You're going to sin this week. Satan will incite you to do all kinds of things. But God wants you to build altars and to repent. Every act of repentance is simply an act of turning ourselves to God. And every time we do this, our turning toward God becomes more habitual, stronger. And we turn our backs better and better on sin. So David subdues the land for worship. He lays a foundation for worship. Third, David organizes the people for worship. Now, before we look at this, I wanted to point out that back in chapter 17, God hinted that the temple was going to be more than a building. He said, David, you want to build me a physical house. I'm going to build you a genealogical house, a human house. You're going to have descendants. He hints all the way back here in the Old Testament that one day the temple will be a mass of people. And here we are in fulfillment of that. 
The temple is a people. So David's got to get people ready for worship because people are ultimately what a temple is. Um, so chapters 22 to 27. In chapter 22, he charges Solomon and the elders. So now we get Solomon named. He's going to lead the whole project. The elders need to get behind him. Chapter 23. No, you know, let's look at a a couple verses in chapter 22 before we get there. Chapter 22. Um, Let's look at verse 6. Then David called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord, my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, I was very disappointed, but I had a different mission. Uh, And this is what the word of the Lord came to him saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. See, David, the reason you can't build me a temple is because you have a different task. You're the warrior and that's okay. So keep shedding the blood I need you to shed. But that means that someone else will build it. Solomon. So David has to finish the work, okay? Think of creation. It was six days of work. But what was the seventh day? Rest. And the day of rest, um, literally, I don't have time to go into this, but literally what it means is God enters into creation as his house. It becomes, Eden becomes a temple on the seventh day. Now look what happens with Solomon in verse 9. Behold, a son shall be born to you, whom shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. David, is he just simply has to complete the six days of work, if you will, metaphorically. And then Solomon will bring in the days of rest. The temple will be built. So then in 22 verse 17... He now charges the leaders. 22.17, David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon, his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you peace on every side? For he has delivered the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and his people. So I've done my job. I've subdued the land. Now you do your job. Verse 19, Now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord, so that the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, or of the Lord, and the holy vessel of God may be brought into the house built for the name of the Lord. David says, like, I've done my job. I recognize now. I was a man of blood, and so I was disappointed that I couldn't build the temple, but I went deeper into God's desire. God just wanted me to perfect what I was given to do, subduing the land. And I've done it. Now, what's cool about that word subdued is we see it pop up before in Genesis 1.28. God creates the humans and he says that he blesses them. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Same word, subdue it. David is fulfilling the Edenic commission by rooting evil out of the land so the temple can be built. It also shows up in Joshua chapter 18. After all of Joshua's war campaigns, 18 verse 1 says, and the land lay subdued before them. David has done what needs to be done before a temple can be built. So he charges Solomon, he charges the elders. Then, chapter 23, he continues to organize the people for worship. 
23 is the Levites. We see them all being organized. Chapter 24 is the priests. We see them being organized. What's the difference between a Levite and a priest? A nuance, really. Um, Fame? Oh, family, family, yeah. Family. Um, Oh, boy. I literally just got this all jumbled up. I I had it all down, and now... uh, the priests, the priests, what's that? Oh yeah, Corinth, yeah, we're in Corinthians now. Um, uh, the Levites, yes, the Levites were the tribe, but the priests were the family of Aaron. That's the difference. So the Levites have a general role, but the priests are the ones that have the specific inside the tabernacle priestly duties. Um, so he organizes Levites, he organizes the priests, and then in chapter 25, he organizes the musicians. Really big deal. We gotta not just have people doing things, but we gotta have singing too. We gotta have worship is a multifaceted thing. There's sacrifices and there's songs and there's things the priests are doing. And and then in chapter 26, he organizes guardians. Um, we have treasurers here. We have gatekeepers. We have various assortment of people who guard and protect the purity of the temple. It's really important. No one can just. What if a Moabite starts coming on in? God would be very displeased. There were guardians over the temple. You don't just, we don't just come in here and have a, an, an eBay swapping shop in here. Um, we worship God here. And so the guardians were there. Chapter 27, he organizes the government. This has nothing to do with the temple. Oh, yes, it does. Because the, the government's role is to create safety so that the people of God can worship God. That's what David's establishing with the government. Now, our government um, is not... It's quickly unfulfilling their role in that. And that's between them and God. But um, that's what David's doing. He's creating government for worship. And then in chapter 28, he charges Israel and Solomon. So how are we doing? Five o'clock? I have no idea. It's so different now the time. When do we start? Yeah, I should be wrapping up soon. Okay. So, um... So in chapter 28, he charges Israel to worship, um, telling them that, look, we're going to build this tabernacle. It's been God's pleasure. He's giving them the whole story. And then in verse 7, 28, 7, I will establish Solomon's kingdom, or I'm sorry, God speaking. David's saying that God said, I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. So, so David's reminding them, look, we need to worship God because this is how we keep his commandments. This is what keeps us in his way. Um, then in verse 9, he charges Solomon and basically gives him the blueprint for the temple. David's got all, look, Solomon, this is what I've got organized. The people I've organized, this is the resources I've collected. This is the blueprint. We, we got to make this, as, as God revealed heaven to Moses and the, the tabernacle's pattern after the heavenly pattern, um, we got to make this after the same pattern. We don't get to reinvent the wheel here. Worship is not inventing what we want. Worship is patterning ourselves after the pattern given to us in heaven. And so he gives it to Solomon. And then in chapter 29, the people, uh, finally, David prepares Israel for worship. So we've seen that David prepares the land for worship. David lays a foundation for worship. David organizes the people for worship. And now David prepares Israel for worship. Um, um, in chapter 29, they bring offerings. If you'll look at verse 9, 29 verse 9. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly 
For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord, David the king also greatly rejoiced. So they were invited to bring all kinds of stuff, and the numbers are there in the verses previous. Tons of stuff are being brought by the people, and they're all happy. They're all happy because they all have a part to play in making this happen. They're giving of themselves, and they rejoice greatly. Then David prays in the midst of everybody. It's worth reading a couple of these verses because um, the tagline to the Lord's Prayer, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, comes actually from this prayer. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And he just keeps on praying and says, You've given us everything. We return it to you. Um, He talks about the offerings that the people have brought. And then he prays that God would grant Solomon a heart to keep his commandments. And then in verse 20, we see Solomon's ascension. Let's skip up to verse 20. Uh, Boy, they cut these verse, middle verse 22. And they made Solomon the son of King David, the second time and they anointed him as prince for the lord and zadok as priest then solomon sat on the throne of the lord as king in the place of david his father and then in verse 26 david dies thus david the son of jesse reigned over all israel the time that he reigned over israel was 40 years he reigned seven years in hebron 33 years in jerusalem then he died at a good age full of days riches and honor and Solomon, his son, reigned in his place. You see the intentionality the chronicler is doing with the whole golden chain? He's showing perfect connection and transition of things. Um, now, the acts of King David from first to last are all written, and he names all these sources that you can go read about if you were back in those days, but we lost these books, so there you go. In verse 30, with accounts of all his rule and his might and of the circumstances that came upon him and upon Israel and upon all the kingdom kingdoms of the countries so thus ends the reign of david and second chronicles picks up the reign of solomon (laughs) brothers and sisters we need to see in conclusion to this great story of david is that disappointment can either deny us of our desires or invite us to dive deeper into god's desires we need to not assume That Nathan's bad advice is true. Remember Nathan said to David in chapter 17, do all that is in your heart for God is with you. That would have really set up the disappointment, huh? Oh, a prophet told me that God's giving me this blessing. And then, oh, sorry. No, actually, I spoke too soon. And God actually said, um, we must assume that our desires are not always God's desires. Now, he gives us desires, but sometimes our desires are created from some dark corner of our own hearts. And we have this insecurity and we want to make ourselves look better, feel better. or We need to get okay with disappointment because it's simply God's way of rerouting us. One of my, in fact, it's the, when people ask, I don't have a favorite, favorite verse, but when people ask what it is, I always say Psalm 8411 because it's meaningful to me. 
For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, which means if it is good for me, God will give it to me. He does not withhold good. That also means that if I don't have it, it's precisely because it's bad for me. It's not that God is stingy and holding back and saying, "Eh." (laughs) when you start praying three hours a day, then that's not how he's working. He knows what's good for us and he has a desire for us and he will sometimes use disappointment to lead us deeper into what he wants. It's a, it sometimes it's a wake up call to say, maybe I don't know what I want Mm -hmm. and praise the Lord that David woke up and said that maybe, maybe I should just draw my sword one more time and finish the work. (laughs) It's a rusty blade over there. And here's what we need to understand too, is that disappointment did not deny Christ of his greatest desire. We disappointed him over and over and over. And we start with Adam and Eve. Oh boy. Cain and Abel. Oh boy. The days of Noah. Oh boy. Uh, Abraham. Oh yeah. Abraham and Israel is going to be great. Oh no, they're not. Oh boy. And, and then even up to today. Nacelle and William and Tyler and John and Jim and Stacy. That's just one row. Disappointments. But you know what? You know what our disappointments did? Our disappointments for God caused him to dive deeper. So deep that he plunged from heaven to earth. And not only to earth, but to the depths of the earth. He plunged to death itself and released us from the bondage of death. He dove deeper because he knows what is best. And when we feel a disappointment, Christ is saying, come with me. I know how to dive deeper. It's okay. I've been at the bottom and I will hold you. And I will make sure that all good things come to you if you're willing to trust me. So brothers and sisters... I think we miss what God puts right in front of us because we spend so much time worrying about being something else, Mm -hmm. being somewhere else, or being someone else. Mm -hmm. Sometimes God does things, right? And he changes and he's he's moving us, but sometimes we're quick to just say, nah, I want it different. Um, And he's talking, he was talking in chapter 17 about he's planting his people, Israel. There's so much language in the Bible about God's people being seed planted in the land. And these things don't happen immediately. Sometimes things need to grow and be watered and be cultivated. And then fruit comes in time. But we miss what God puts in front of us because we're so emphasizing disappointment that we sometimes miss that God just wants us to look a little deeper at what's in front of us. Oh, I could tell you guys so many stories in my life where this is the case. Um, Brittany's a wonderful example for one of them. You know, I would have missed Brittany had I insisted on some other. Yeah, there's a, yeah. I'm just like you're at this moment where like, how do I now like, how do I say something without going too much longer? Um, but um, God has continually taught me to just stop being antsy. Draw the sword that I've already given you because there's so much in front of you that needs to be subdued. 
And um, God is at work. He is at work even in our disappointment. So let's dig deeper in his desires. And when we do, he might say, all right, David, cool. Yep, you do actually get to build the temple. (laughs) He might say that. Or he might say, yeah, no, it's someone else. So you got a job to do to get them ready for that. We have to be okay with being backstage. We have to be okay being second fiddle. We have to be okay with, Lord, whatever you want to do, it's your glory. And when we do that, the glory comes back to us in his own unique way. Probably at the end when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. But that's, uh, and David gets to hear that. Because David successfully passed it all on to Solomon. The golden chain was connected. And the golden chain among us, yes, but the golden chain in your own life. The story that God has been doing, the whole chronicle of the history of God in your life. Are you cutting it off or are we allowing the chain to work link by link? Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen.